the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. Welcome to a brand new week. Hey, it's going to be a really good show today. I know because we just had 20 kids in here to pray for this program and they're praying for you and they're praying for me. So how can it not be good? Hey, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions or life questions, anything that's on your heart or mind as it relates to Jesus or to the Word of God, I'll do the best I can to answer. All you have to do is call us, dial 210-340-9585, that's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area here in San Antonio, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is by using the free KSLR mobile app. You can use the hands-free feature and just push Call Now, one button at the top of the screen, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, because it's Monday, I hope that you had a great weekend in church. Uh, I got to teach yesterday about worry. And what a response we had. I guess worry is something that's pretty universal to all of us. We're in Luke chapter 12, and, um, and we had a great day here yesterday. Uh, felt like it should have been Communion Sunday, but it wasn't. It was the last day of the month, so I hope you're all having a great April. Hey, because it's Monday, also we have our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies here tonight at 7 o'clock. Ladies, you can watch uh, live streaming at calvarysa.com, or you can join the ladies who are here. Dr. Um, Sheba Paley will be teaching tonight, uh, and she is a really gifted teacher, so... Um, that starts at 7 o'clock. Child care is provided. And because we're the men in the high school and the junior high school, you can make it a family affair. Everybody can come and, and have their own Bible study to go to. Let me go right to the questions that we have been sent in. There are some really good ones. Um, here's the first one from our email inbox from Nacho. He says, what or whom do the four craftsmen represent in Zechariah chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Nacho, before I answer that question, um, let me say this. Um, Zechariah might be the most difficult book in all of the scriptures um, to interpret. It's it's a great, great prophecy. We've actually have taught through it here at Calvary Chapel, um, but uh, there's going to be a lot of different ideas. Let me read what it says. It says, Uh, Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I asked, what are these coming to do? He answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise his head. But the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. And then Nacho asked, could this be a reference to Alexander's empire, which splits into four kingdoms? Nacho, it, it, it could be a reference to Alexander the Great, but not... Uh, not in the, the the empire that was split into four kingdoms. 
let me do my best to explain. Uh, whenever you see horns in the Old Testament, they always represent power. And we know that these are the four horns of the power that God used to scatter uh, his people who were under judgment. And we know specifically that the power that scattered uh, Judah initially was Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. So then we have to understand what the four horns could represent. Now, it's impossible to know, sure. They could represent all the Gentile peoples that persecuted Israel up to that point. That would be Egypt, Assyria, Syria, and Babylon. Or it even could be symbolic of the four points of the compass, which would be a general way of saying that the power to destroy is going to come from every corner of the earth. Uh, It could even be predictive in nature. In other words, that this prophecy would also have a long-term fulfillment. Um, But uh, it is my personal view, Nacho, that uh, it represents the present and future enemies of Israel uh, at the time of writing, um, kind of the way Daniel did, and that would make the Gentile nations, these craftsmen, these four uh, sources of power, uh, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Uh, Rome, of course, was in power at the time Jesus comes. Whatever it means, uh, for sure, uh, Israel is overwhelmed. Um, but then the, the verses you asked about specifically, um, God shows up with his own answer, the craftsman. Um, the condition of Judah was so bad that no man could lift his head. Uh, there was no hope. And God gave them hope. He did it in these uh, four craftsmen to terrify the powers that be. Um, it could be, uh, Nacho, that um, Alexander the Great um, would be the, the tool used to overthrow the Persians and Rome uh, to do likewise uh, with Greece. Uh, and the idea here is that God always has his people to accomplish his will, even when it doesn't look like that's going to be the case. So um, there are some who think these are angelic beings. Uh, There's just no way of knowing for sure. And Zechariah is one of those books that doesn't give you all of the answers that you want to have. So I hope that answers your question. 340-9585. Let's go to my next question. It is from our email inbox from Scott. And he says, is there a prophecy to say that the geographical area of Babylon will be desolate and uninhabited till the end times? And would Isaiah 13, 20 be that passage? Um, Scott, you're absolutely right. In fact, I just taught this uh, last Wednesday night, a week ago. Um, And one of the things that we know for sure about this, this prophecy, let me go back to verse 19 and read. It says, Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonian's pride will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. She'll never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will rest his flock there. And it goes on to talk about there will be desert creatures there and jackals. And there's there's a word in there in Hebrew that could be demons as well. So um, all of those things are possible. Now, here's the thing that you have to understand. This is a prophecy, and, and Isaiah 13, I had such a good time with this. I was telling our church that there's no way I can make this Bible study last Wednesday as interesting as it really is. Uh, I get really geeked out sometimes about prophecy, especially when you go to the prophecies um, of old that are partially fulfilled or there was short-term fulfillment. But then Isaiah in particular often goes all the way down the corridor of time and space into the millennial kingdom. This is one of those long-term fulfillment prophecies, um, Scott, that isn't, isn't being, uh, has not yet been fulfilled. Um, we know uh, Babylon is modern-day Iraq. We know that people live there. So this is a prediction of the complete and total annihilation of Babylon or modern-day Iraq uh, in the end times. When Jesus comes and overthrows his people, um, his enemies, um, we read about this in Revelation chapter 19, um, Babylon, which will be um, um, sort of the, the economic capital of the world during the Great Tribulation, also the religious capital of the world uh, during the Great Tribulation. Uh, it will be the, 
the, the, the figurative city of Babylon that controls the world, that's always been controlling the world. But, but in that, the end times, in the very, very end, it will be destroyed as Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, I told the church you can look up on your Google Maps, you can say, where is Sodom and Gomorrah? There's no place. Um, because God so utterly destroyed it. Well, that's also going to be Babylon's future as well. By the way, um, Scott, Israel, um, during the Great Tribulation, especially when when Israel is um, hiding the second half of the Great Tribulation, when they're running into the rock city of Petra in modern-day Jordan, uh, where God will preserve them through the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. The Antichrist, the man we call the Antichrist, will set up his kingdom in literal Babylon. That's why it's going to be destroyed. All of the damage that he did to God's people, um, desecrating the temple of God uh, in the midway point of the Great Tribulation, setting up an image of himself demanding to be worshipped, the judgment is going to be severe in those days on all things Babylon. So that's um, one of those how the mighty have fallen things. You know, Babylon, I told the church uh, last Wednesday, um, is, is really, the, the, our Old Testament's a tale of two cities. Babylon is mentioned more times in the Bible except for Israel. Babylon is mentioned by far Babylon is mentioned by far um, more times than than any other city except Jerusalem. So thanks for the question, Scott. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question from Kirby from our email inbox. Is there a unique importance to the number 1,000? Is there any correlation in regards to living in human body with the fact that Methuselah, who lived 969 years, and the people could, and that people could or will live up to a thousand years in the millennial kingdom. Um, Kirby, I don't think there's a, a unique importance. Nobody's ever lived to be a thousand years old, and certainly um, during the millennial reign, uh, people could possibly live the entire thousand years. But I don't think it has any connection necessarily with Methuselah. Methuselah is a great picture of God's patient. You know, the Bible says, for Peter writes that, that God is patient and willing that any should perish. And Methuselah was God's message to the world um, before the flood. Um, I will not put up with mankind forever. Their disobedience, their rebellion... And Methuselah's name means literally when he comes, when he dies, it will come. In other words, the, 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 the man on earth who God had lived the longest is the one who, who was a promise that judgment was going to come. And that's a wonderful picture of the patience of God and the grace of God. Um, Methuselah was a message, and they got the message so... I hope that helps, but I don't think there's any significance necessarily in the thousand years in Methuselah. Let's go to line one and talk with Gary calling from San Antonio. Gary, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yes. Hi, Pastor Ron. Um, I had a question regarding Babylon. Um, I'm not in your church study, but um, so I was just wanting to know, who do you think represents Babylon uh, in Revelation? And and that's really my question, and, and then I'll just uh, hang up and listen to you on air, if you don't mind. That's fine, Gary. Thank you. Um, if I understood correctly, Gary, who, who do I think represents Babylon? Um, Babylon is modern-day Iraq, and, and there is going to be a, an overwhelming resurgence in uh, Iraq in the last days. The, 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 again, the man that we call the Antichrist is going to rebuild it. You remember, remember, Gary, that Babylon is one of the seven, um, the, the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven ancient wonders of the ancient world. And um, the idea that Babylon, and especially Nebuchadnezzar, could ever be defeated was unthinkable at the time. Uh, but because they took such delight, Nebuchadnezzar probably um, the most cruel 
uh, ruler in the history of the world. Um, he, he was a, a man with no conscience. And yet God had his man there for Nebuchadnezzar. That man, of course, was Daniel. Um, and Daniel prayed for him. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar, we have his personal testimony in Daniel chapter 4. Um, as, as impossible as it seems, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Um, he, he, he came to his own mind, finally, or came to his senses after taking credit for all that God had done um, for him and through him. Um, um, he lost his mind. He actually became like a, like a cow grazing uh, in the fields. So uh, who represents Babylon, or who does Babylon represent? Uh, Babylon is very, very, very literal. It's to be taken that way. We've got commercial Babylon or an economic Babylon, and then we've got spiritual Babylon. I think I misspoke earlier, so I can correct this now. Um, spiritual Babylon represents the false religion of the end times led by the false prophet, and and that's not going to be in the literal city of Babylon. Figuratively, it's uh, she's called the whore of Babylon, but it's going to be in Rome. We know it's the city of seven hills. So the end times church, the, 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 the one world church, is going to be headquartered in the city of Rome. Um, so I'm not misunderstood here. I want everybody to understand that's not the Roman Catholic Church as we see the Roman Catholic Church today. It's just that that church will be headquartered in Rome and it will be Catholic only in the sense that it will be the universal church of the last days. It will be a church marked by false signs and wonders. So Babylon, while there's great symbolic value, um, there's there's a lot there to be taken literally. There are, I think, three three sets of chapters in the Old Testament and or actually in our Bibles that that deal with Babylon's um, history and their future. Um, Isaiah 13 and 14 that I, we studied past this past Wednesday. Oh, Jeremiah 50 and 51. And then Revelation 17 and 18. And if you read those six chapters, you're pretty much going to get the, the entire history of Babylon. So, Gary, I hope I didn't misunderstand your question, but um, Babylon, I don't think, is to be symbolic uh, beyond what we know, uh, but it's, it's also to be very, very literal. Thank you very much for calling. I appreciate it. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is... A question from Philip. He said, where can I find information on Jesus' childhood, what he was like as a teenager, for example? Uh, Philip, you can't find any accurate information on that because there isn't any. Obviously, our Bible only gives us uh, information um, that, that was written by and preserved by God. And the only information we have about Jesus' childhood was that incident in when he was 12 years old, when uh, his parents left without him and they didn't know it, they would be traveling in large caravans, uh, and they, they went back kind of in a panic and found Jesus teaching in the synagogues. Um, I had a question, I think two weeks ago, about whether or not that was a sin, uh, because he wasn't being obedient. No, he was being obedient to his father. I must be about my father's business. Uh, but there is no credible information all. Now, there's something called the Infancy Gospels that, that's that been written, um, but Philip, it's all nonsense. It's um, um, fantasy. Uh, so, it, it, there just isn't anything that's credible at all. And and one of our problems, we, we put the word gospel in it and we start thinking, oh, well, well, then this must be the same as our gospels. It's not. There's simply no value, uh, Philip, at all uh, in digging in, into information that the Lord didn't provide. Um, he says we don't need it. And so when people invent it, we're actually much better off by just um, being content with the information that God has given. Let's go to San Antonio and then talk with Cindy on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. Last night there was a program on uh, the History Channel that was covering Jesus' life. 
and it's a two-part series. The second part is tonight. I only got through to the, like the first half when they started to talk about John the Baptist because one of the commentaries says that John the Baptist knew who Jesus was, and the other one said that John the Baptist that in the book of Mark says that he didn't have a clue as to who he was, and, and that just doesn't make sense because wouldn't it... Wouldn't it stand to reason that they were family, and when they when uh, Jesus came back out of Egypt and was put in Nazareth, wouldn't it be that they'd somehow get together through the years over family occasions, and 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 that John the Baptist and Jesus, you know, had to spend time talking about God with each other because their mothers knew that their babies were, you know, gifts from God. So it's just a thought, and and the program, you know, kind of annoyed me when. But they said that uh, John the Baptist didn't know Jesus at all. So I'll get off the line and, and listen to your comment on it. Bye. Thank you, Cindy. Uh, you, you know, every, every year as Easter approaches, um, you get all of these liberal scholars uh, with PhDs behind their names, PhD of religious studies, and, and uh, they're unbelievers. They're unbelievers. They haven't got the Spirit of God and. Uh, and Cindy, unlike you, those things irritate me so much because they 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 claim such authority, uh, and, and I know they're just vessels of the enemy trying to to cause doubt or cast doubt on the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. A couple of things about Jesus and John the Baptist—they were cousins. Um, um, I guess we would call them second cousins, um, but but that doesn't mean that they would get together for family picnics and things like that. Well, uh, obviously, Mary knew Elizabeth, and she made that trip when, when she, uh, after she'd been visited by Gabriel, and uh, Elizabeth was in her sixth month of pregnancy. Uh, and so Mary went and stayed with her for a while. So, yeah, they would have known of each other, and they would have known about each other. Uh, but it is clear from Scripture that when Jesus appeared at the waters of baptism, John knew exactly who he was. Now, John was filled with the Spirit from birth, and so it could have been divine revelation or it could have been just something that he knew, but he knew it beyond doubt. It's not right that I should baptize you. I should do it the other way around. You should be baptizing me. And he talked about Jesus, one who, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. So he knew exactly who he was. Now, the, the issue in the Gospels when John is about to die, and that's the Gospel of Mark when, when uh, I'm sure this, this uh, so-called scholar uh, was talking about, um, John was in prison. John was like every other Jew. He believed that when the Messiah come, that the kingdom of God would come. And so he was confused. And he was scared, and he was in danger of losing his life. We all forget things. Even Mary and 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 uh, Jesus's brothers and sisters had times when they forgot. They, they actually thought he was crazy, out of his mind at one time. And certainly, Mary knew who Jesus was. Sometimes circumstances cause us to change our perspective, and that's what happened. And um, John simply sent a messenger: "Are you the one, or should we wait for another?" And Jesus answered that question by saying, you go tell John that the blind see and the lame can walk. Lepers have been cleansed and demons have been cast out. Those are all the things that were prophesied that the Christ and the Messiah would do when he came. And so in this particular case, um, John just let his circumstances, well, this isn't the way I thought things were going to turn out. Um, and with the help of an enemy there, he was just had moments of doubt. When we're afraid, we all have moments of doubt. But make no mistake, Cindy, you're right. He knew exactly who Jesus was. Um, I think we need to give him a little bit of a break. Some people say, well, how could he have lost faith? Um, you sit in a dungeon. You be in danger of having your head cut off every day. And see how you do with your faith. He just had a moment of doubt, a moment of fear. And... and uh, Jesus reassured him, and believe me, when they took John's head off, um, he died a happy man because he had seen exactly what he knew was coming. So, Cindy, great question. Might save yourself some annoying uh, 
time this evening by not watching the other half of those things. Um, here's a critical question, sort of a edgy one, anonymous. Please address the silly teaching that says, uh, you know, I don't have time to do this. I'll do this on the other side of the break. Um, here's one I can do in the minute we have left. Uh, Adam says, Pastor Ron, what are your thoughts on R.C. Sproul's ministry? Well, Adam, is, is I'm sure you know, R.C. Sproul went to be with the Lord. He was a believer. Uh, but I was never a fan of his ministry. He is a hardcore five, was a hardcore five-point Calvinist. Now he knows better. Um, um, I've seen a lot. He was a very bright guy, but there was always a, 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 a tinge of pride. And because he was so confidently affirming these um, reform positions, uh, I've seen his ministry do a lot of damage in people's lives. And so I, I never was a fan of R.C. Sproul. Uh, he is a genuine believer, and we're going to see him when we get to heaven. But um, um, I wouldn't recommend anything that he wrote, uh, wrote or or taught. We've got 30 minutes left in the Monday program. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the program remember we love your calls here's the kind of critical harsh question that i was going to address and didn't have time it's it was anonymously sent in Please address the silly teaching that says men and women who love each other cannot live together or have sex. No one cares about that anymore, and everyone is entitled to sex. Anonymous, a couple of things. Let me tell you a quick story. Um, actually, a man who was my friend, he's still my friend. I don't think I'm his friend anymore, but, but um, um, he argued with me about this very issue. Nobody pays attention to that anymore. I mean, it's just not that big a deal anymore. And I kept trying to tell him that God never changes. This, the, the issue is, is holiness and obedience. And God who created a sexual desire, gave us the gift of sex, he alone has the right to tell us how to use that gift in a way where we can be both blessed and a blessing. And it's only on his terms. So Anonymous, the silliness is coming from the heart of the one who's writing or asking this question. Why would you think for a moment that you can trump God when it comes to determining how to use your body? especially as a Christian, obviously your question would indicate that you're not. But God cares very much, as much today as he did 2,000 years ago, when our Bibles were being written. To say that everyone is entitled to sex denies that God is in control of your life. The man I told you about at the beginning when I answered this question was a, is still a professing Christian. But you see, he's trying to make God over in his image instead of understanding that he was made in God's image. And you're doing the same thing. So let me, as clearly as I can, say that having sex, living together without marriage... having sex with someone who is the same gender as you are, all of that is sin. And Jesus died to give you an answer for sin. Jesus died so that you'd have access to God again. Because sin cuts you off. And here's what I can promise you. If you'll ask Jesus Christ into your heart, 
you'll change your perspective on these things because by definition a Christian has to agree with our Christ God is timeless the ancient of days and since he doesn't change neither do these rules for living which focus on personal holiness nobody's entitled to sex it was a gift from God and only God gets to determine how we can use it and enjoy it. Here is another anonymous question, uh, Pastor On. How detailed must we be when confessing our sins to God? Boy, that's a great question, Anonymous. Um, you know, normally if, if I sin, um, I know what I did. God knows what I did. And so I'm not going into great detail. Um, I'm just saying, Lord, I know that was wrong. You know it was wrong. Uh, and I tell him I'm sorry. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so I don't know that we have to be all that detailed. I think what we need to do, Anonymous, is deal with sin as it comes up. You know, I think maybe the genesis of this question is that we... We, we go from time to time without confessing our sins and then we got to try to remember what all those sins are. Remember that God knows your heart. He knows everything about your sin. And what we need to do is simply accept personal responsibility for our sin. Lord, that was me. That wasn't you. I'm so sorry. I don't want to live like this anymore. Please forgive me. And instantly, instantly, your sins are forgiven. Your relationship with God completely restored. You have access to the throne of God where the writer of Hebrews says that we can go every day with confidence that we will receive grace and, and, and mercy to help us in our time of need. So I don't think we have to be that detailed. Now, I also um, I want to address very briefly, Anonymous, if, if your question is coming from a Catholic perspective, um, the whole idea of the confessional is, is silliness. We confess our sins to God. There's one mediator between man and God, the man in Christ Jesus. We don't have to confess our sins, and certainly we don't have to get specific. When I tell the people here at Calvary Chapel, when uh, they're invited to come forward and confess their sins, we have people, especially on Friday nights, that will stand in front of the church and pray, husbands and wives and, and, and people that are mature believers, people that I know and love and trust. Um, I tell them not to be specific. Just, just tell them that I've sinned against God and I want um, to be prayed for and I want to pray and ask for forgiveness. But there, there really isn't any reason to be specific. One other comment. Um, the one thing that we really need to avoid in our confession of sins is the general, oh Lord, I sinned, you know what I did, kind of thing. We, we have to be serious about our confession. And that's why we need to deal with it on a sin-by-sin sin basis. When we find ourselves falling, we say something that's awful, we do something that's awful, right then and there we can stop while the sin is fresh in our mind and heart. We say, I'm so sorry, Lord. But you know, Lord, if I sinned yesterday, forgive me. That, that, that's kind of a pointless prayer. So um, just deal with your sins as they occur. And I think you'll know you don't have to be all that detailed because that those details are sort of percolating in your heart and, and God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who's put them there. Here is a question from Stephen. What does it mean to hear God's voice? Is it audible? And why doesn't God speak to us like he did in the Old Testament? Um, Stephen, today, and I'll be, I know there are people that will take issue, especially those that are from sort of extreme charismatic churches. Um, God doesn't speak audibly anymore. If we were to hear God's voice, it would shake us to our very core. Um, so uh, the, the people, and we hear this all the time, you know, I heard God speak to my, no, I heard him audibly. They didn't really. In, in most of the cases, if there was anything that they heard, it was from an enemy spirit. But 
we all need to hear God's voice. Now, the way we know what God's voice sounds like is to know Him. Too many of us, we have a picture of Jesus in our mind and in our heart that isn't even anything close to who He really is. Well, my God is a God of love, or my Jesus says this. We have to know Him, and to know Him, we have to know His Word. So I hear God's voice. Stephen, you'll hear God's voice in His Word. And it happens differently. Again, it won't be audible, but you'll know it's God speaking to you. Most often, it's going to be conviction. You're reading the Bible, and that that mirror into your soul gives you the heads up that what you're saying or what you're doing or how you're living is wrong. And God wants you to repent right then. Um, Often, Stephen, His voice will be a voice of of, uh, edification or, or encouragement. Um, there have been a lot of times when the Lord has spoken to my heart so clearly that it had the same impact as if it would be audible, but it wasn't. Uh, and he was just encouraging me or even preparing me for something. But the really important thing to remember here is that if we don't know God's word, we're never going to know if we hear God's voice. As to your question, why doesn't God speak to us like he did in the Old Testament? The answer is given to us very specifically in Hebrews 1.1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us, and the literal Greek there is in son. And Stephen, the idea there is that Jesus is God's final word. He has nothing else to say. He's like the, the, the conductor, the, the composer of a symphony, and it's over. He puts down his baton and nobody plays. He has nothing else to say to us because he said it all in the gift of Jesus Christ. That even makes it more important to know your word because that's the only measure we have. The only measure we have to know whether something is really from God. You know, First John 4, 1, Stephen, uh, he says, Brothers, test the spirits, because not every spirit is from God. And we live in a time where demon spirits are loud and chatty, and they're misleading, and they're trying to get you off track, and yet they can be so convincing. I've had people come into my office and say, God told them to divorce their husband or divorce their wife. Well, did he cheat on you? Did she cheat on you? No. Are they beating you? No. Well, then God didn't say that. No, God told me he wants me to be happy. He wants me to have a new start. You see, if they test that spirit by the word of God, they would know that that's a lying, demonic spirit. And remember, their job is to lie. Their job is to try to confuse us and get us out of God's will. And... If we don't test the spirits, and the only measure we have to test the spirit is the Word of God, the Bible that you have at home, well, then we're never going to know it's God speaking to us. I found, Stephen, and, and again in the Old Testament, you're talking about talking to Moses or Abram, hearing God's voice audibly. It was a completely different time, and God dealt with people in a completely different way. And while we think that's pretty spectacular, I promise you that every Old Testament hero, no matter how often they heard God or saw God in pre-incarnate form, uh, no matter uh, what miracles were done, every single Old Testament hero, go through Hebrews chapter 11, every one of those men and women would change places with you and me in a moment because we have such a much greater intimacy with God than they ever could imagine. God in us. The hope of glory, we're told. And they could never imagine that kind of relationship. So believe me, having the Spirit of God living in us is far more powerful and far more intimate than God speaking to us in an audible voice. So that's why he doesn't speak to us like he did in the Old Testament. We know so much more about God than Moses did, for example. Because we have Jesus in us. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Peter says, Pastor Ron, I struggle with why God would order entire cities of men, women, and children to be killed in the Old Testament. Peter, 
This is a, a, a question that we get um, with some frequency here on the program. Um, one of the things we have to understand is that God is the righteous judge of all of the earth. So when Joshua and the Israelites went in on their seven-year campaign in the promised land of Canaan, God was judging those people. They had sinned to a point where there was no remedy for their sin. Their hearts were so far from God, so hard. And believe me, they were accountable. They knew after the, the, the plagues in Egypt, the whole world knew who God was. And yet they continued to make their own gods. They continued to worship false gods. They continued to live lives in opposition to God, all the while claiming to worship their little g-gods. So it's judgment. I want you to think about something in a New Testament construct, Peter. In Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus comes to initiate his millennial kingdom, He's going to destroy all of his enemies with the word. It's judgment. Judgment is supposed to be harsh. Judges, judgment is supposed to be entirely consuming. And when you struggle with something like this, it's almost like you're saying, God, I don't believe that you're fair, and I don't believe that you're loving, and I don't believe that you're just. I've had people who cheer the murder of 65 million American babies in this country since 1973 accuse God of infanticide because of the Old Testament stories. You see, the problem is that they don't know God. They have no idea who He is. Peter, as a believer, you know who He is. So your assumption has to be that it's just that they deserved it. In fact, in Canaan, God was patient for more than 400 years before judging them with Joshua and the armies of Israel. So everybody that died deserved it, and God who knows when they've reached the point of no return, God judged them. Now, he didn't do it without warning them for those hundreds of years. He warned them these things were going to happen, but they simply wouldn't listen. Now, here's the, the, the question that most people struggle with, well, why the children? We know God is merciful. These are children who, if they grew up past the age of accountability, would be just like their parents, just like their neighbors. And they would have spent eternity in hell. Remember when Jonah was angry with God for sparing Nineveh? He said, well, what right have you got to be angry? What if I have 120,000 in Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left hand? Those are kids. God was going to be patient with them. But in these campaigns of Joshua um, through, through the land of Canaan, every child that died before the age of accountability would be with Jesus in heaven right now. It's merciful. The best thing you could have done for them is wipe them a lot before they grew up and became just like their parents and their friends and families. So Peter, don't struggle. Just assume that God is just, that God is fair, that God is loving. Sometimes unbelievers will challenge us with things like this and they think they're putting us on the defensive. And unfortunately, too many of us as Christians allow us to be defensive because we can't explain it. Look for Jesus' mercy in everything that he does. And believe me, judgment is the last thing God wants to do. But because he's holy and righteous and just, he has to judge. He can't overlook sin. Here is a question from Noah. If God hears our prayers and we have what we ask for, why are my prayers not being answered? Well, no, I can't be sure because I don't know what you're praying for and I don't know what the motives behind your prayers are. 
Um, the prayers that God chooses to hear and answer are prayers that are consistent with his will. Now, I can pray and I can shout at the top of my lungs and uh, I'm a believer, so I could say, Jesus, I want this and now you have to give me what I want. Um, but if God knows that that thing I'm asking for isn't good for me, it's going to draw me away from him, then God's under no compulsion to answer that prayer. So why are your prayers not being answered? Check your motives. James writes, you have not because you ask not. Now you're asking, so that's not it. Or because you ask amiss or with the wrong motive. So this is a really good time for you, Noah, to sit down prayerfully and let the Lord, have your Bible open, but, but sit down prayerfully and ask the Lord to examine your heart. Truth is, if you're asking God according to His will, your prayers are going to get answered. If the motive of your prayers is to honor God, your prayers are going to get answered. I always like it when people's prayers start to get answered because it turns them into prayer warriors. But, but when prayers aren't being answered... Sometimes it's just God saying, no, your heart's not right. Other times it's God saying, no, the timing is not right. And we've got to be able to rest. You know, in Hebrews, this past Friday night, we were told that Jesus' loud prayers were heard because of, because of his obedience. Well, remember, he's talking about the Garden of Gethsemane there. and Jesus said, Father, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, And that prayer was answered with a no. There's no way this cup can pass from me. And Jesus would pray, nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done. Well, that's the portion of the prayer that God answered. So, Noah, if you want your prayers answered, with thanksgiving, you can make your request known to God, whatever your requests are, with a grateful heart. If you don't have a grateful heart, then you might as well just be quiet because God's not going to answer your prayers. But with a grateful heart, you can ask God for anything, and then you can say, nevertheless, thy will, not my will, be done. I think, you no, know, part of our problem, when our prayers aren't being answered, it's because we want our will to be done, even if it's not God's will. Those are never prayers that he's going to be able to answer. I tell my church all the time, Noah, that I think when I get to heaven, the prayers and the answers to them that I'm going to be most grateful for are those things Jesus said no to. And in heaven I'll understand why he said no and how good it was for me that he said no. Paula and I went to our, not our, my 40th high school reunion 10 years ago. I just got an invitation for our 50th reunion. Man, we're old. But uh, we went 10 years ago and there was a, a girl there that I had the huge crush on, a huge crush. She was the most popular girl in school, in junior high school. Her name was Cheryl, and and she, she was just the one girl that everybody wanted. And, of course, I thought I had to have her. And um, um, I saw her at our 40th high school reunion, and I instantly began praising God for not letting me have Cheryl Butler. Lord, you gave me Paula. You gave me precious Paula instead of Cheryl Butler. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Um, That's just an example of a prayer God said no to even when I wasn't even a believer as a kid in junior high school. Um, But um, when God says no, it's for our own good. Here's Misty. How are we doing on time? Oh, just three minutes. Misty says, why does God allow people to mock him or to blaspheme him? Um, Misty, because God understands us. He understands uh, our flesh is is ugly and our flesh is no good thing. Um, I'm sure it breaks his heart. Uh, If Jesus were like us in his humanity, uh, we, we would all think, well, I've done everything for you. And this is the things I get. Jesus isn't like that because he truly understands. Um, from a human perspective, we wonder, God, why don't you take him out? Why don't you defend yourself? He doesn't have to. And he's patient. Now, Misty, here's the, the, the real important thing I want you to hear. I blasphemed God 
I made fun of his people. I mocked God regularly. Worse than that, I think the worst of all, is I used God to make money. If I was dealing with somebody who was a religious person or a a Christian, um, I'd pretend like I was one. So you talk about mocking God. I was the champion at doing it. And, uh, you know, God in his patient love didn't kill me, didn't judge me. In fact, he, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 29, no matter how much I tried to change his mind about loving me, I just couldn't do it because he set his love on me. He refused to take it away because of my behavior. That's grace. God loved me so much he waited. That's why God allows people to do those things. Last question. Oh, I like this question from Natalie. Uh, Since God knows everything, how can he forget our sins? Uh, Natalie, I often say that one of the best things about God from my perspective is that he has a bad memory. Now, it's a bad memory by choice. But he chooses to forget my sins. Why? Because he knows those sins are covered in the blood of Jesus. So it's true he knows everything, but my sins and iniquities he will remember no more, we're told in the Bible. And that's such a great, great thing, because when I meet him in heaven, all those things are forgiven and forgotten. And yet he does know everything. Selective memory, and I love that. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. Remember our studies tonight at 7. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.